I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. We're still working our way through Lent, and today we have John 11, verses 1 through 45. (laughs) So it's a really, really long pericope, but I think um, it's one you're going to know as Alan gets into it here. Yeah, everybody take a deep breath because we're we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> Our gospel lesson this week, I think, continues the pattern we've seen lately. Major themes in John's gospel are portrayed in the narrative. And so that's we, we saw it last week. We saw it with the woman at the well. We're seeing it again this week with the narrative of the death of Lazarus and Jesus raising him to life. And specifically, we see a dramatic demonstration of the conviction that because Jesus is God incarnate, he is able to convey life to those who respond in him in faith. That's kind of the heart of this passage. Yes, yes, yes. So moving ahead, let's, what's the setting for this? Well, basically, John's gospel sets the stage for us at the beginning of our lesson this week. Jesus receives word from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus is ill. And we're told that Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are particularly close to Jesus. In fact, the sisters simply identify Lazarus in the message as the one you love, mm-hmm. which has raised questions about whether there's any connection between him and the disciple whom Jesus loved, mm-hmm. who's mentioned in John 20, verse 2. But we're also told later in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Mm-hmm. So it, I, it doesn't seem likely. I mean, I think it's just simply the fact that... that Jesus was particularly close to this family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And furthermore, Mary is singled out for attention as the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. You know, this happened almost right after uh, the raising of Lazarus. Mm -hmm. They're they're there in Bethany, and and Mary anoints him. Um, And, of course, the... The idea is with a view toward his his death. Right, 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 yeah. And so, again, this marks her out as one who was particularly devoted to Jesus. Right, yeah. So Jesus seems yeah. to have a special relationship with his family. With the family, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's how I've always understood it. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, so moving on. So, th- although they do not ask explicitly, the implication is when they say the one you love is ill, the implication is that they're asking Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. Mm-hmm. But Jesus responded strangely for one who was so close to this family. Rather than rushing to be with him, he waited two days. And Jesus offers the reason for this. He says to his disciples, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's verse Mm 4. And once again, I think we can hear the irony of John's gospel in this statement. Although Lazarus did die, it is implied that Jesus already knew that he would raise Lazarus to life. So on one level, you have this irony. It will not lead to death. In other words, Lazarus is going to live. Right. But um, on another sen- on the other hand, in, in another sense, um, it did lead to death, in in because this illness and and the subsequent death of Lazarus, as well as Jesus' act of raising him, led to Jesus' own death, mm, mm-hmm. right? Because that this was we're going to see this was the final sort of the final straw for the Jewish religious leaders in determining that they were going to seek to have Jesus killed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So again, as we've already seen then, the situation of Lazarus's illness and death are also intended for God's glory. And that is, it will, set, it will set the stage for another significant revelation of what God was doing in and through Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. We saw that last week in connection with the man born blind. But more than that, this happens so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And again, I think this points to the central affirmations that we will encounter about Jesus himself in this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it points us toward Jesus' glorification, which in John's gospel takes place through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Mm-hmm. You know, as I'm, as I'm processing this myself, it, it really does strike me as, as kind of introducing us to that kind of thin line between life and death and our perception of it, right? Okay. You know, we, yeah. I mean, we talk about that. We tend to see our, 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 I guess, our secular worldview. There's people who are dead, people who are alive, and they're very, they're very much apart from each other. Right. And here, we are slimming that down to saying, I, I just, when I'm thinking about this pastorally, I, I think about that, that mm-hmm. those discussions sure. I have with families um, who maybe don't believe saying mm-hmm. this is not so far apart. And, right. um, right. This reminds me of that, and and particularly with Lazarus and mm-hmm. Jesus coming slowly. Yeah, this illness will not result in death. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I get that. I yeah. get that. Yeah. So uh, again, heading on to the next scene. Yeah, in the next scene of the narrative, Jesus makes what would have been a startling announcement to his disciples: "Let us go to Judea again." Uh, the reason for this is that the conflict with the Jewish religious leaders has reached the point that to go anywhere near Jerusalem would have meant risking his life, as the disciples point out. And again, Jesus offers answers that seem at first glance not to address their concern. Again, we kind of saw that last week where they didn't really understand his answers. So first, Jesus tells them, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. That's verse 9 and Mm -hmm. 10. And it's a strange way, I think, of saying that, that Jesus is reminding us, you know, what he said last week in connection with the healing of the man born blind, that the work is urgent because the time is limited. Mm-hmm. But again, this reminds us of the theme of Jesus' hour in John's yes. gospel. And, and we've talked about that before, but, you know, throughout John's gospel, the hour, uh, the Jesus' hour is something that is stressed. And, and it's becoming clear, I think, at this point in John's gospel yeah. that Jesus is approaching the hour that will lead to his glorification. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. There's a... Uh, there's an intensity in the, mm-hmm. in in the in the in the narrative there that yeah. that you start to feel and it it I don't know how this how come this comes through but there's there's a sense of kind of dread for it and yet kind of a sense of it'll be okay at the same time it's a str- I don't know how you put I that would in call there. it urgency I, 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 I would call it right. urgency I think that's yep. right yeah yep. urgent in the sense that it must happen and it's important but urgent in the sense that it's also coming soon yeah mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, secondly, Jesus' response demonstrates the use of language that can be understood in two ways, as we have seen so much of already in John's gospel. You know, we saw born again with Nicodemus. We saw living water, you know, with the the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. And to fall asleep, which is the verb koimao, is also a euphemism for death in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's used that way a number of times. Furthermore, Jesus' stated intention to awaken Lazarus 
um, and the verb is exupnizo, which is only here in the New Testament, plays on that dual meaning. That the disciples misunderstood Jesus is clear from their response. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Mm -hmm. And that's the new RSV. But their very response conceals another dual meaning. The new RSV, like most English Bibles, understand the verb sothesitai as meaning that he will get well. But we've encountered this verb in the synoptic gospel tradition enough times to remember that sozo in connection Mm -hmm. with healing refers to both healing and salvation. Mm -hmm. And so the Wycliffe translation and the Geneva translation both have, he shall be safe, which I found interesting. And the New American Bible, which is a Catholic translation, says he He will will be be saved. saved. And and it's it all, I think again we see we see John's uh, fondness for irony because it's like they're saying more than they know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. I, it, yes. <laughs> so moving on then. Yeah. To clarify things, then John's gospel inserts a narrative aside explaining that Jesus was talking about Lazarus' death in verse 13, and then Jesus follows up by telling the disciples plainly that Lazarus is dead in verse 14. And he then explains the purpose for these events. And surprisingly, he says that these events have unfolded as, have unfolded as they have so that you may believe, yeah. referring to the disciples in verse 15. And what's more, the way this is phrased in the New Testament, it sounds like it means that the intent of all of this was so that the disciples themselves might come to faith mm-hmm. because it's hina pistusete, which is an aorist uh, subjunctive. And the aorist suggest that they are coming to faith, not that they are having their faith strengthened or that they are developing their faith or that they are increasing their faith, but rather that they are coming to faith for the first time is the, is the implication. And, and so you have the Phillips translation. Phillips, J.B. Phillips was a New Testament scholar who had his own translation of the New Testament back in the early 19th century, uh, early 20th century. That you may learn to believe is the way Phillips translates it. And I find it interesting that the contemporary English version, now you will have a chance to put your faith oh, in me. I really like that. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, but unfortunately, you know, given the stark contrast between belief and unbelief in John's gospel that we've talked about so many times, um, it's astonishing, really, to me, to find Jesus addressing his own disciples as those who have yet to come to faith, um, you know, which is, of course, similar to what we find in the Synoptic Gospels, right? Mm-hmm. Matthew, in Matthew, one of the favorite phrases that Jesus uses for his disciples is, oh, you have little faith. Right, And, and in Mark's Gospel, we saw the, you know, the, 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 the theme of, of the misunderstanding that the mm-hmm. disciples just don't get it. But I think it's almost a little bit of the synoptic tradition working its way into yeah. John's Gospel here uh, in, that, in that the disciples are portrayed as those who need to come to faith because, you know, Given the context in John's gospel, the implications of that are astonishing, right? Because, you know, in John's gospel, it's, you know, you either believe or you don't believe, and this is your opportunity. If you don't take it, you're condemned already. Right. And so the implication that the disciples still have yet to come to faith is just shocking. And I think that's probably the reason why most English Bibles obscure this (laughs) and avoid that that's unfortunate yeah but it's unfortunate because it kind of gives you this that it gets you away from that black and white idea of faith Mm. and we've talked about this i think Mm. last week Mm -hmm. but here we see it again Mm -hmm. is that this faith is this process i mean these they're already following jesus they have some faith they're following right right? right? and yet i mean you know in one of the themes as we saw in mark's gospel is none of the disciples truly understand that jesus
Jesus is the son of God until after his death, right? Yep, so they yep. don't really believe until after the fact. Exactly. So, exactly. so you know, you know, most English translations have some version of the way the new RSV translates it, so that you may believe. That right. sounds like, well, maybe they're just taking another step of faith. Right, right. But hina pistusete really implies more so that you may come to faith. And I really... I really like that. If I were tra- if I if it was the if it was the Reverend Doctor Alan Brame translation, I would translate it so that you may come to faith because I think that tension was meant to be there, and yeah. I think it's a good counterbalance to that 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 other emphasis in John's Gospel that seems to make mm-hmm. it so clear that you know you choose now, right now, right. and and what you choose right now is going to determine your eternal destiny. Mm-hmm. Well. Thomas, who's we're going to see, plays a leading yes. role in this narrative. Thomas says, "I refuse to believe unless I see him." When he's right. when, when the others said he was resurrected, so we have we have varieties of this, you mm-hmm. know. And, and the final, you know, the final statement in John's Gospel is all the, you know, Jesus yes. did many other signs, but these are written so that you, you may- might. Come, come to, to faith. Believe. Right, come right. to faith, right? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And yeah. so at the end of it all, it's still, you might come to right. faith. Right, right. So I, I, I like the fact that, that, that's why I would translate it that way here, is because I, I think it's it's a good counterbalance to that other notion. I think so yeah. too. I yeah. think so too. All right, keep moving on now. So now I do like to point out that it was the so-called doubting Thomas who responded to Jesus' decision to risk his life by saying, let us also go that we may die with him. Nobody else said that in John's gospel. Thomas said that. I know. That. I've always loved that. I yeah. loved that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, and I find it interesting that Thomas plays a leading role in John's, in John's gospel, especially since he will refuse to believe in the resurrection without seeing yeah. Jesus at the end of the because gospel. Because this is such a... This is such a comment of the deep faith. So we could mm. die with you. Yeah, we. I yeah. trust you that much. Yeah. I. I'll die. Peter's with you. the one who says, "I'll die with you." In in, in yeah. the synoptic gospels, yeah. right? Right. Right. And, and exactly. it's Thomas, Thomas who says that here, here. though, yeah. and Thomas then our doubter later yeah. on. So yeah. what an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I think. Thomas' response here, so that we may die with him, points us forward to Jesus' death at the hands of the Jewish religious readers. And this is another way this passage kind of points forward to that. So then the next scene actually constitutes what I would consider to be the heart of the narrative. Here we find the purposes that Jesus has alluded to spelled out definitively to make clear not only who Jesus is, but also that what he is doing fulfills God's purpose for the world. And again, I think we see in John's gospel, it is clear that Jesus already fulfills God's purpose in the present time, which points to the theme of realized eschatology. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to mention a clarification about that. The fact that realized eschatology is a theme in John's gospel Gospel. doesn't mean that there is no future eschatology. There, there are right. future references Thank you. to yes, judgment I think that's important. In, in John's mm-hmm. gospel. But um, um, this, this theme of realized eschatology is still a very uh, strong theme in, in mm-hmm. John's gospel. Mm-hmm. So we head on then to Jesus' arrival in Bethany. Right, right. And that's the beginning that's of the, the scene. They, they arrive, yeah. He arrives at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And actually, really, it, it's before he's actually there. So he's still not, he's still outside the village when Martha heard that he was on his way and she went to him to meet him before he arrived at the home. And the details of the scene then reinforce the fact that Lazarus was truly dead. Um, Mar- Martha's initial response to Jesus makes it clear that she had hoped that Jesus would have come and healed her brother. So the mm-hmm. implicit request in, in that we've heard at the beginning here, she makes explicit. And some have interpreted her statement, you know, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died as a complaint. If it is, 
However, it's more the, I think we should mm-hmm. see it more as the language of lament, similar to the Psalms. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can read a lot of what's in the lament Psalms as complaining to God. Right, exactly. But, but it's, it's the language of faith, nevertheless. And so I think we see that here because she does not hesitate to affirm her confidence that even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Now, I think the following dialogue implies that she was saying more than she knew. Even when mm-hmm. they came to the tomb, you know, she didn't expect Jesus to raise her brother to, to, to new life. So, right. so right. Um, um, you know, it's a statement of confidence, but probably, again, she's saying more than she knew. You know, this is so interesting because sometimes when I read these stories in particular, I try to visualize how would I craft that into like a theatrical performance. Mm. And so I've always been thinking about, well, how do I portray Martha there? Do I portray her as angry? You know, and I, and, and that's kind of my first, always been my first read. Really? Yeah. And Mm. I don't think that's fair there. I think it, but that, I mean, I could just imagine her just, where is he? Why isn't he here? Mm. Why isn't he helping him? Um, and yet here, then you kind of get this. So I, 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 and, and then her next response is, is she reconciled that she's died or is she, is it showing that she actually really has faith, as you said, beyond what she knows? And yeah. I, I, I guess I've always seen her as grieving in this episode. Mm-hmm. I've always imagined her as, as grieving. And so she's sad, but, but she, she trusts in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I will say as a pastor and as a preacher, as a person who's been preaching all my life, I love this whole emphasis, or at least the implicit emphasis. It's implied many times in John's gospel that people say more than they know about Jesus. Because I have to say, you know, I think I'm in a position every week of saying more than I really know. I I agree with that. (laughs) I agree with that. And I think there's something to be said there when people are, when we understand our call to faith. So then at the heart of the narrative is Jesus' dialogue about death and resurrection with Martha. And it begins by Jesus promising her that your brother will rise again. And Martha assumes that Jesus was referring to the resurrection on the last day. Now, this idea of a final eschatological resurrection mm-hmm. was one that was affirmed, especially by the Pharisees within right. Judaism, and one of the beliefs that Jesus shared with them. Sure. But Jesus was talking about something entirely different. And again, we should remember that the whole purpose of these events was for the glory of God and so that the Son of God mm-hmm. may be glorified, as John eleven four right says. There. Yeah. And so this narrative is intended to demonstrate the truth of the earlier statements that Jesus made in John's gospel, especially in John chapter 5. In John 5, 21, he said, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. And also in verse 26, he says, just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is very important in John's gospel because as, as we're going to see, in John's gospel, we have an ontological Christology that undergirds the functional Christology. Mm-hmm. And basically what I mean by that is we have affirmations about who Jesus is that make it possible for him to do the things right. that he's doing. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Thank you. Very good. So Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, again, first of all, I think we should recognize that this is another of the I am statements in mm-hmm. John's gospel, which identifies Jesus as the one who was with God and who was God in the beginning and who has become flesh. Mm-hmm. And again, the incarnation 
is the premise of the affirmation that Jesus was able to grant grant the life that the Father has in himself because he has given it to the Son, right? So here, resurrection and life are not realities that one must make for the last day to experience, but rather Jesus, as the Word of God incarnate, is able to grant life here and now. And again, this is that this is that ontological Christology that serves as the basis for functional Christology. I've made the statement before in the podcast that most of the New Testament's Christology is functional. And right. I stand by that. Yeah. But here we have a genuinely ontological Christology. Mm-hmm. It is it is because Jesus is the one who incarnates God right. that he has the life of God in him and he's able to do these things. And I'm going to point out, as we move into the theologies of our reformers, this is going to be central. So then, you know, part of the whole point of this is that this key statement in John 5, uh, I'm sorry, in John 11, 25, and 26, Mm I am the resurrection Mm -hmm. and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is the key affirmation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So part of this statement affirms that, as Gail Gail O'Day says, Death belongs to the ongoing life-giving power of God in Jesus. So that Jesus could say, even if those who believe in him die, they will live. So that, you know, death is a part of God's domain, so to speak. Uh, it is not some separate domain where, whereby people are separated from God. And, and more than that, however, this affirmation is also a vision for life by which those who believe in Jesus no longer have to live under the shadow of, and again, I'm quoting O'Day, the inevitable power of death, but instead by the irrevocable promise of life with God. And so it is that Jesus can say, everyone who lives and believe in me, le- believes in me will never die. Now, this is not saying that believers will never die. And I think that's one of the challenges we have with this passage is because just on the surface of it, it almost sounds like you're saying, well, anybody who lives and believes in Jesus will never die, will never experience physical death. Right, 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 right. That's not what it's saying, but rather it's saying that they can live in the faith that, and again, I'm quoting O'Day here, God's life-giving power in Jesus defines their lives, not the fear of death. So it's more about how you live and that, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's about how you face death and how you approach death. We, we approach death from the standpoint that, um, even though those who believe in Jesus die, they will live. So we have that confidence that even death belongs within the life giving power of God. But, we also approach our life not from the standpoint of, you know, some who will say, well, you live and you live, you, live. you pay your taxes and then you die. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of a fatalism. Right. 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 Um, no. We, from the Christian perspective, we we live from the standpoint of the irrevocable promise of life in God. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And through Jesus Christ. And so exactly. God's life giving power in Jesus is what defines our lives, not some sense that death exactly. is the ultimate. Exactly. And what's remarkable is when you live your life that way. Yes. When people can live their life that way. Yes. It's it's just uh, it's just this awesome like energy. I yes. can't explain it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's abundant life. It's, it's abundant that's life. eternal life. Yeah. Yeah. That's eternal really, life in John's is. gospel, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So and again, the essential importance of this affirmation for John's gospel is highlighted by Jesus' question to Martha in verse 26. Do you believe yeah. this? Isn't that interesting that he poses this to Martha? Do you believe? Because she's already affirmed her confidence in him, right? I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him, right? Right, yeah. So she affirms her confidence in him. But at the same time, there's, 
I think Jesus is, is recognizing not only in Martha, but also in the disciples and also in all the readers mm-hmm. that there is room for growth. On, I mean, this is kind yeah. of where the water hits where the right. water hits the right. wheel, where the rubber meets the road. This is the crux of faith right. in this life experience that we have in our human in our humanity. It is, you know, can we can we face death with confidence? Can we face death from the standpoint of right. God's irrevocable promise of life, uh, or not? Right. Right. And, and, right. And we're always pushed on that. And so I think we should see this as a question not only addressed to Martha, but to all who hear the gospel. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And then the affirmation she has, the witness she <laughs> right? has, is key. It's very key. And, and it's one of the key affirmations of Jesus' identity in John's gospel, along with Peter's affirmation mm-hmm. in John six sixty nine. You have the words of life, Lord, to whom shall we go? But also then Thomas, at the end, makes mm-hmm. the final affirmation, my Lord. Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Right? Well, again, the other real true affirmation here in John's gospel is Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Right? we got Lord. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. So you've got Lord, Messiah, right. Son of God, the one coming into the world. So it's, a, it's almost, it's really almost one of the fullest uh, affirmations of Jesus' identity in John's gospel. Well, and in my play version... I love this because I'm seeing this person who is so distraught. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing this person who is saying these things, yes, or and then I see this and that affirmation there that taking it in mm-hmm. um looking him in the eyes and saying, "Yes, I believe." Yeah, it's it's a it's a key affirmation here. And so then the scene shifts when Martha goes to tell Mary that Jesus was there. And although Mary comes to Jesus, says the same exact words that Martha did, Mm -hmm. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. The setting has shifted. Mm -hmm. And so there's really now no more opportunity for any further dialogue. You know, Jesus can't have the same dialogue with Mary that he had with Martha. And the reason is because the Jews who were consoling Mary followed her, and so Jesus is no longer just interacting with one of his own whom he loved, but rather yep. he's in a public setting. Yep. And uh, so uh, things that I, that seems to be the reason why there's such a difference between uh, Jesus' interaction with Martha and Jesus' interaction yeah. with Mary. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. All right. Now, although the next part of this scene is perhaps a favorite of many because it shows how tenderhearted Jesus was, it has been badly misunderstood. The situation is not one that called forth Jesus' deep compassion, but we should read it, I think, as one that called forth strong feelings of anger. Oh, interesting. Now, again, this is based on the verb embrimaomai, and we run, we ran across that in the healing of the leper in Mark's gospel huh. because, you know, most English translations say that Jesus was deeply moved mm-hmm. and, 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 and healed the leper, but it's embrimaomai, and we talked about how, you know, no, Jesus wasn't deeply moved to compassion, but rather he was deeply angered. And, um, you know, but it causes problem, right? problems, right? Because we're, we're, we're not comfortable with anger. And we're certainly not comfortable with Jesus 
being angry. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, Embramaomai can mean that he was deeply moved in spirit as an expression of compassion, as the NIV and the New and and the Revised Standard Version. Uh, New American Standard Version uh, has, uh, the Good New Translation has it, his heart was touched. <laughs> and um, that is one translation, but it's not likely here. Now, a number of English Bibles take it in a more general way of Jesus being upset. Uh, the New RSV says he was greatly disturbed in spirit. And that's similar to the Common English Bible. The New American Bible says perturbed. And the CEV <laughs> says upset. But there are several that render it in terms of anger. So the New Living Translation mm. and the message both say a deep anger welled up within him. Uh, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible has he was angry in his spirit. Interesting. And well, that's a huge, um, at least in English, that's a huge shift from it, is. it touched his heart. Right. It sounds all, oh, to right. he was angry. I mean, he was that, a deep totally anger welled emotions. up within him. Yeah. And so... I would, again, in the Reverend Dr. Alan Brame translation, I would translate, I would be following the message in the New Living Translation, mm -hmm. a deep anger welled up within him. And it would seem that his anger was in response to the Jewish crowd, which we have to remember, in John's gospel, the Jewish crowd are portrayed as divided over Jesus at best. Mm-hmm. And at worst, openly hostile to him. So th this is not like, oh, these are just really nice people who are just hanging around. These are people who are at best to be viewed with suspicion mm -hmm. as to whether or not, you know, as in terms of their attitude toward Jesus. Wow. So the fact that Jesus wept, then I would say was likely due to his anger mm -hmm. they were tears of anger not a reflection of his love for Jesus, for Lazarus as the Jewish crowd mistakenly thought now again of course the fact that they asked the question about whether or not he could have healed Lazarus seems to complicate this interpretation of Jesus getting angry and the mm -hmm. tears of anger but it could be taken as a sarcastic response rather than a sympathetic oh. one. At the very least, I think we should recall that the crowd is portrayed in John's gospel as continually arguing about mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Jewish, the Jews are not uh, a friendly group in John's gospel. Mm -hmm. So, uh, clarify, why are they angry? What, I mean, what are they, are they angry because of the healing are they angry because of the I think Jesus is angry because the crowd was there and it prevented him from being able to interact with Mary I got in it. the kind of way that he interacted with Martha I think he was angry that these people who um, were continually testing him yeah were there and it prevented him from being able to per again perhaps comfort her in the way that he wanted to okay yeah and I think he, I think also partly he may have been angry because he knew what the outcome of this was going to be, and which was that some of them were going to go back and report on him to the to the Jewish leaders. Right, right, yeah, it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just responding to 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 you. I'm a little confused. I mean, no, I understand I, because you, it goes completely contrary to the way most English Bibles have translated it. Most people have interpreted it, but it's it's hinges on this verb imbramaomai, which in the yeah, New Testament no. is used for deep anger. I I keep thinking of the emotion of the experience, which was also emotional for Jesus Surely. and for because he loved his family. Because he loved this family, you know. Again, I think part of it was that Jesus 
loved Mary and wanted to comfort her right. in the same way he had comforted well, Martha. And he wasn't able to do that because the crowd was there. I think part of did. it is, was that he knew that some of them were going to betray him to the Jewish leader. You know, part of me also says is he's going to raise Lazarus, right? So it's mm. almost like these people are there to spy on him. Spy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So that, that seems to be to me the reason for it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So then the final scene in the narrative tells us about the miracle of raising Lazarus to life. And even after revealing to Martha who he was and after her affirmation of faith, I find it interesting that she's still not able to conceive of what Jesus was actually doing. You know, he says, roll away the stone. And she says, Lord, it's been four days. And the King James, you know, he stinketh. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love that. (laughs) Gotta love that. Gotta love that. But again... You know, Jesus knew what he was doing, and, you know, he demonstrates it by his prayer to God. And, and the fact that Jesus prayed to God was not simply for show, it was not simply for the crowds, but rather it demonstrates, again, the truth of the earlier statement that he made, that he did nothing mm-hmm. apart from God, and that all that he did was for God's glory. Mm-hmm. So then finally, after a long narrative that hints at what is to come from the very beginning, Jesus calls Lazarus to come out, and the dead man came out of his tomb, and again... The point of all this was to demonstrate the truth of Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection mm-hmm. and the life. And mm-hmm. he demonstrates that literally by raising Lazarus from the dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, although the lesson for the Revised Common Lectionary ends with the statement in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. That sounds like, oh, all's well that ends well. Yeah, yeah. It has a, I've always found that to be a little bit... It's not the right place to end the story. Right. It's not the right place to end the story because the very next verse tells us that some of them, some of the crowd that witnessed this, and I mean, these are people who saw Jesus call the man forth from from the grave, right? Right. Some of the people who witnessed Jesus doing this went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. In other words, they're reporting on him because they still won't believe. Right. Again, I think this is the cause of the anger Mm -hmm. that that we were talking about earlier. Um, So as a result, then the Jewish religious leaders met and decided to follow Caiaphas' counsel that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. And John's gospel Mm -hmm. says that from that day on, they planned to put him to death. So really, I think that's really where you need to end the story. is because you know this that, that's this narrative of of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Jewish religious leaders and they decide right. it's time to get rid of well, this guy. Well, and especially to lead you through Lent to the I mean or the other sounds ends with this nice happy mm-hmm. story and and oh they believed it and you kind of oh they all believed in him because of this miracle and that's the wrong emphasis no. for Lent. It really, I'm surprised they stopped it here and pushes us through because mm-hmm. If they then all believed in him, that doesn't make any sense. Why did they crucify crucify him? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I agree. That's that's a good. And you know, it's so easy for us to just take um, the revised common lecture and not look beyond because Mm -hmm. we're all guilty of that. So Mm -hmm. this is anyone listening. This is a reminder. Probably add those next few verses. (laughs) Thanks, Christy. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) 
Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy um, lead us in a discussion of how the Reformers interpreted this passage. So, um, Christy, tell us what you found. Sure, sure. And I've, my discussion's a little bit shorter today because it's such a long passage. Um, and I found, as I was kind of looking through, um, well, in, in particular looking through the um, institutes, Calvinist institutes, but also into Luther, that they really were hooked on verse 25. And if you recall, that's the, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And that is one of kind of their proof text. They use this all throughout the institutes. Calvin references it in his, um, in some of his early writings. And it's just um, it's just a core, they thought, to the Christian faith. Well, and I can't fault them for focusing on this because, as I mentioned, this is really the 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 central point. Mm-hmm. This is this is the whole point of the whole narrative is is that affirmation that so, Jesus makes. So I can't fault them for that. I exactly. might not agree with the, how they how they use it. <laughs> right. So let's take a look here, and um, you know, one of the one of the first kind of major treatises of the Reformation is from um, fifteen twenty, and and Cal, uh, and Martin Luther wrote three in fifteen twenty, and and this it, we see it in Freedom of a Christian, and this is what is shorter one of the three, but really kind of puts down his theology. And um, now, remember, in this one, this he does, he's still not in the process of, it. it's ultimately going to be one of the pieces that's going to divide him from the Roman Catholic Church. But at this point, he's still in this kind of conciliatory tone, thinking, mm. thinking, look, if I put this out of what Scripture actually says and that this is the true faith, the church is going to reform in accordance with it. And so, so he's, still, he's still dialoguing with the yes, church. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. He hasn't made a break yet. Um, so it's, as I said, it's one of his most important works that then moves him from, if you will, the, the attempt to have the debate of the 95 theses um, to then, um, and, and having that posted to then this kind of break with the church. Um, and we know um, from our discussions, our theology is rooted in the, Refor- the Reformation tenet, um, this idea of salvation by faith alone. And this is, of course, what's pulling the Protestant reformers away from the works righteousness practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's here um, that Luther argues that uh, we, ex- by accepting the grace of God, that we are truly free. We're no longer bound, if you will, to the works process. And so for this hymn, this is a, a proof text, if you will, mm, for I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in mm, me, even though yeah. they die, will live. It's not what you do. You just have to believe. I see. I see. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll have to say, you know, while I can understand him using it that way, I feel like he put the emphasis on the wrong syllable uh, because because the point in in the context is more on you know that Jesus truly is the one who right. can offer life. I I agree. It's interesting. It's interesting as you kind of step into their shoes though, and you start mm-hmm. to see the lens that they come at it. Mm-hmm. And once Luther had made this epiphany for himself, this kind of. Uh, Oh my gosh! Yeah. Then he comes back and reads scripture with this with this lens, and all of a sudden it kind of like oh, and it uh, it, it does impact us today, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, and another part um, is used. Um, another part of the way this t- text is used in Reformation theology is the use of the life to reflect that Jesus is 
life. And it's used by Calvin to show that we have life, eternal life in God who came to us through Jesus. It kind of builds on what Luther said, but it contains Calvin's emphasis on fallen humanity. It is only through Christ that we can be restored to God. God, through Jesus, gives us life. Calvin furthermore reminds us that the entire reason for Christ's incarnation was our redemption, and he cites this passage mm. here for mm. that mm-hmm. as well. Well, and again, you know, I can I can go with Calvin more here because, um, you know, the emphasis on life, that we have life through Jesus Christ, and that is the point here, mm-hmm. is that God, Jesus is the one who's able to give us life. And again, the entire reason for Christ's Incarnation, right? That's that's I think consistent with the mm-hmm. theme in John yep. that that it is because Jesus is the one who was God and was with God and mm-hmm. became flesh um, that He is the Word of God right. made flesh that He can give us. You know, He bears the life of God in Himself, and so He mm-hmm. can give us life. Right. And I think you could kind of see a progression here from mm-hmm. this idea put forth by Luther in this kind of limited lens, and, and and at this particular time when this is what's on his mind in particular in 1520 to this kind of idea of, of Calvin, which kind of spreads out, really looking at at who God is and who Jesus is. Um, and then as we, and as, as he sees it through here. Well, and I know, you know, I know that all of these guys are theological commentators on the Bible. They're, they're, they're commentate, comment, comment on the Bible is theological in primarily in nature. And that's, I mean, all of us look at the Bible through a theological lens. It seems to me that Calvin is more one who is willing who, who just by term, in terms of his work is focused on almost biblical interpretation as opposed to theological right. interpretation. Whereas as Luther has struck me as someone who is more theologically motivated and his interpretation is more theologically motivated, I'm not sure if that's right. Would, would you say that is consistent with, with Luther or not? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I truly, I mean, Luther really began as a student of the, of, I know, of, I know of the that. scripture. Yeah, he and started with his exegesis absolutely. of Romans. Right. But I think for him to be, I think for him to have this this whole shift of opinion about it, and then I, and then as he kind of moved from this kind of medieval approach to scripture, and there's people that are much right. m- more about this than I do, then he comes to look at it, and then I do think there's a period there where he starts to kind of reevaluate all of scripture with a new lens, mm-hmm. which may not be fair, but I think it's fair to him at the time. Surely. But I don't want to say that he came to that first. I think he came to it by reading scripture and within his own kind of mental crises, his own his spiritual crises, right. that then freed him and then allowed him to come in with a new lens, which was so new um, that um, then it came to affect how he looked at scripture. Sure. And I think that makes and sense. I, think it's I mean, fair. because because to some extent, it was really a tectonic shift for him yeah, from absolutely. from the medieval exegesis right. of the Roman Catholic Church to to his his new way of looking right. at things and if through you will, the lens it, of justification by faith. It becomes, and there's others that are starting to ask some questions, but it, but you know, as the Reformation takes off, it all comes from that mm-hmm. kind of principle that Luther laid out. Yeah, and and so then as others are coming and framing it and expanding more and using their background. And, of course, I, I think I've mentioned before, you know, here is contempor- Luther's contemporary Ulrich Zwingli, who's in there um, preaching not the medieval lectionary but at all, but is actually going going um, verse by verse through each, mm-hmm. each um, 
each book of the Bible mm-hmm. um, and really coming in a different way saying, look, we're not preaching right because we're not getting at what the true meaning of the scripture is. So they were all after that. Yeah. But it was really Luther was that one that had that major, oh, that awakening, major shift, yeah. that major yeah. awakening. Yeah, that, yeah, sure. That um, they were recognizing their things were wrong, but but Luther has a new a new lens for it. And uh, the anti-right has that whole... Um, has that whole section on the new Paul and that mm-hmm. discussion of mm-hmm. that and similar kind of thing, a similar kind of thing because yeah. you go and all of a sudden a different lens comes in and yeah. then you realize how much of our our church now and how we look at it is shaped yeah. basically from that lens. And just comes to. just to fill in the blanks there, um, N.T. Wright's new perspective on Paul in part um, looks at the faith of Jesus Christ. Um, which is a phrase, you're, we're saved by the faith of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's faith in Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, but a lot of times it's the faith of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. And his perspective is when we see the faith of Jesus Christ, there are times when we should read that the faithfulness of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. In other words, to fulfill what God had called him mm-hmm. to do. And and that's a big, that was a big shift that, that, Right came to back in the eighties, mm-hmm. I guess, and it really kind of changed the the whole ground for our understanding of Paul. Yeah, in a lot yeah, of ways. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, another passage uh, that um, uses this, or and another aspect of this passage, and how it, is how it reflects resurrection. Um, now, um, this doesn't surprisingly enough. Um, it doesn't reflect the Lazarus at this point at all, but yet the verse again, 1125, that looks to Christ, who is the life, and to Christ as the promise of our salvation, our resurrection. As Christ is the head and a leader, so too will we be saved um, and experience resurrection. So it's, it's, it's like... It's like he set the stage for what we're going to experience, mm-hmm. too. Um, and, of course, in Calvin, those who believed are saved, um, and then there's this question of what happens to the ungodly. And this is one of the major discussions in Calvin's emphasis on the possibility of being damned. He says, if Christ came as resurrection and life, did he come to all mankind with that distinction? And why should those who receive the grace of God when they do not recognize faith? Mm. So as I've mentioned this in Calvin, that there seems to be times when he shows that faith is um, resistible. And we Mm. always talk about Calvinism as irresistible faith. Right. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. But here that there's this idea that faith itself is resistible, which is interesting, that there is agency in the human being to step away from Christ's call. And so on the other hand, we talk about that there isn't, you don't have that choice. Yeah. So it's, there's a tension in Calvin that the we sovereignty see. of grace. Exactly. Yeah. How can, how can grace be sovereign if someone can resist it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he has no ex- explanation for how someone could resist Christ unless they are unable to see grace. But here he calls it stubborn blindness, which I think indicates that the freedom that we do have to ignore Christ. Mm. So, and I see this all the way through through Calvin, is that sometimes he, you know, there's that tension in between that there seems to be some agency, some freedom, human agency that we have to, to resist, mm-hmm. to resist God's call. And I, I, I can't quite put a finger on it yet, but I think because we've been so conditioned to read Calvin in terms of 
of predestination and irresistible grace, and therefore, if you believe, you're saved. If you don't believe, but if if you don't, but but how does that happen? You were you were predestined to hell, so not to believe. I, I, and I'm not quite sure that it's reconciled within the current commentators on him. I really yeah. don't. Hmm. I think yeah. I think there's a tension there, and maybe and and maybe they just, yeah. I think there's a lot of pieces there that need to be pulled apart. Well, and I, you know, to me, it, 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 I think I wonder, you know, you know, Calvin is trying to systematize theology. Exactly. And there is a sense in which biblical theology resists systematization. I agree. Because there are tensions within biblical theology. And, um, one of those tensions is, you know, grace versus freedom of the will, you exactly. know, and, and how do you balance those out? How do you explain them out? And I think part of what, you know, you, you pointed this out. I think part of what, what Calvin's problem is, is almost a pastoral problem. You know, he and Luther and Zwingli and all these other folks, Bullinger, they're, they're, they're doing their best to preach the word of God rightly. And how in the world is it that so many people who hear it just don't respond? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And they're kind of baffled by that. Yeah. You kind of, how do you explain it? And mm-hmm. I think there's this also, and I, I know all pastors deal with this. And even though, you know, we're, we're just the mouthpieces, we still think, how can we save people? We, we have this mm-hmm. need and, and, and we want to make a difference. We want to make a difference. And then realizing that sometimes our words go on deaf ears that's hard to handle it is. too and it is. so there's just an it, it kind of provides a as a no pastor i can understand what you do some people aren't going to hear it yeah and, and for me i think you know I, I can understand why they might come to the conclusion well i mean if if you know i've done my best to make it clear and the bible is there and it's clear and and if they won't hear it then they just won't hear it and they must be prevented from hearing it. And that must yeah. mean that, that yeah. you know, somehow they have willfully resisted to the point of being hardened. You know, right. you have this this idea of Israel hardening themselves to the point where they, they just can't hear they or can't won't hear, hear uh, in, in Scripture. And, uh, you know, that's I get that. That's one way to look at it. But um, I think for me, you know, pastorally, I've real, come to realize, you know, in my encounters with people is that there are all kinds of reasons why people – aren't able or willing to make the step of faith or, or perhaps they once believed and have stepped away from it. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of reasons for that. Right. And I don't know that it's, I don't know that I need to <laughs> try to come up with an explanation right. for it. I right. leave it in God's hands. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, and I think that is ultimately the position that Calvin say, look, God is sovereign. Mm-hmm. Leave it in God's hands. There's stuff we don't know, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, trying to make some explanation here. But the end of the day um, is that it, it it's not really for us to be sitting and judging those yeah. who who don't believe, yeah. which I think Calvin would agree with. Um, so another place that eleven twenty five is referenced in regard to baptism, which is <laughs> I really strange. chuckle about that. <laughs> I know, but he, Calvin uses this to support his position on infant baptism. Now remember, mm. we have um, kind of the emergent of believers baptism then and right. and right. people and and it becomes important to the magisterial reformers to continue to do infant baptism and and yet because it was a practice of the catholic church they have to they have to justify it to some of the more radical reformers exactly exactly so in calvin's view it is in christ that we have life and therefore we must be engrafted into christ in order to be freed from bondage 
His description of the need for baptism does ring of earlier concepts about of original sin and innate corruption. But his concept of engrafting, I think, is really beautiful. Sure. And I think uh, very useful still in the modern church. So it sounds like, you know, I guess coming back to Luther, you know, Luther says, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's, it's by faith that we have life. Mm-hmm. And so we're justified by faith. He comes to that. Sounds like Calvin is, is sort of expand, expounding on that in that, in, that um, in order to believe, in order to experience this life, we must be engrafted into Christ. And the way a person is engrafted into Christ is through baptism. Yeah. Which, I agree. You know, I guess, and I can see the logic of it, but it's, it's, I have to chuckle at him reading that into this passage I, because I, it's not at all I, I, I in agree. the context. I agree. It seems a little bit um, extreme. He's stretching yeah, it. it. Yeah, it seems a stretch. So, and then the, I just one other piece, and I, I, I didn't go look at the commentaries where I would have found, you know, a detailed verse-by-verse verse thing of this. But in terms of the institutes, the there was this really interesting little part on the raising of Lazarus. And I just thought it was interesting. And Calvin made sure that we understood that that the raising of (laughs) Lazarus belonged to the age of miracles. We talked about that last week. And that it is not something for us to be able to do. And certainly we are not supposed to expect priests to do. It is the divine power of Christ. And his argument is that within the Roman Catholic Church, by the use of priests in this role um, um, as intercessors and healers and um, was in mimicking Christ in this role of healing Lazarus. Mm. So he goes on to say, if we pretend to give this power to priests, then we are trying to rival God. Um, And apparently, as I said, there had been a tradition within the medieval church that the raising of Lazarus confirmed the ability and expectation that priests could heal. And it was based on the assumption that Jesus told the disciples to, quote, unbind the risen Lazarus and let him go. And so, so unbind him and let him go becomes then a, mm-hmm. a, the, an explanation of the vocation of priests who are to unbind and let go those who exactly. are there healing. Exactly. Hmm. And now, yeah. um, and Calvin actually gives us some background on this, which I thought was kind of fun too. Um, but the, the, this came from the belief um, that it comes from a document by, that's known as a pseudo-Augustine. In other words, something that had been ascribed to Augustine that really wasn't. Um, and uh, that is from that uh, that treatise that they got this idea that this was um, meant for the disciples, and we we talk, just talked about it. This this in, this was the Jews that did that, not the disciples specifically. Mm. So um, this idea that this that the unbinding was something the disciples did, thus the priests that are the disciples that are the designated disciples mm-hmm. then are, can do this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but, it, but giving the power to the, the disciples, it, it again, put this buffer between Lazarus and Jesus. And it was used in the medieval church to justify the role of priests as intercessors. In other words, the church was using this miracle to justify the heightened role of the priesthood. And it's the priests again, who unloose the bands of death. You know, one of the things that fascinated me about teaching hermeneutics was looking at all these different ways that people have interpreted various Bible Isn't passages. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah, it is. yeah. Well, yeah. and again, and, and that's one of the big challenges, too, is to write to, to um, 
um, to always be aware of your lens, mm -hmm. you know, and, yep. and that's why I'm having fun doing these mental exercises of trying to, well, how am I going to, how would I stage that? Yeah, you know, sure. because, <laughs> sure. because what a strange different lens that can bring to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks, Christine. Thanks. Hi, everyone. We're back. And uh, we've been processing what we should discuss. And um, Alan brought to me a kind of a lovely little quote about this. I mean, I think we hear this. Um, I think we hear this, this thing and we this, um, the story of Lazarus raising of Lazarus, and we wonder, eh, that can't really happen. That does that goes that goes beyond what I can understand. And I think it's important for us maybe to dig into what does this mean and, and, and what does this mean about our, our, our lives? So why don't you go ahead and read that quote and we'll go from yeah. there. Yeah. So I'm, again, I'm, I'm taking a lead from Gail O'Day in her um, article on the, on her section on the gospel of John in the new interpreters Bible, which again, I would highly recommend. I think she does a great job of on the gospel of John. Um, and, you know, she starts with the question of, did this really happen? I mean, we're talking about Jesus raising a guy who was four days in the grave. I mean, his body had started to decompose, right. you know. And so, um, but, but she says it really points to a larger question. And it's really the question of faith. And that is, can we believe that God, acting through Jesus, has power over the course of life and death? You know, and, and we alluded to this a little bit when we, when we were discussing my segment. You know, a lot of people have sort of a fatalistic outlook that, you know, oh, life, yeah. life is just basically you pay your taxes right. and then you die, right. which is a very deterministic, very fatalistic, very right. um, resigned yeah, way of looking at life. You know, I just, I just give up, you know. It's absolutely. And, and there's nothing I can do. Life is going to beat me right. up and then you're going to die, you know. Right. Um, or can you know can we really take this you know affirmation that jesus makes here i am the resurrection of the life um even those who believe in me even though they mm -hmm. die will live mm -hmm. and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die yeah. you know can do we really take that seriously and can we take it to heart and can we not only uh, she actually goes into this can we not only apply it at the time of death as pretty words that comfort people right you know it's a nice thought to think that maybe you'll you'll be reunited with your loved ones or that you know they're they're in the presence of jesus in the presence of god they're comforted uh but is it more than that is it something that defines our life can you know yeah. can we live our life from the standpoint of the irrevocable promise of god which is life in jesus christ um and that's the focal point of this passage in john 11 and um I think that's that's therein lies the rub, right? Is that mm -hmm. that's really where the where it really becomes the crux of the problem is can we do you believe this? <laughs> Jesus said it. Do you believe this? Right, and, right, right. You know, I think there are times when maybe we believe it more than we don't. There are times when the struggles of life push us to the place where we're having a hard time believing it. Mm -hmm. But um, um, it makes, I think, all the difference in the world as to whether or not your fundamental outlook on life is right. one of sort of fatalistic resignation. You pay right. your taxes and then right. you die. Or it's one of, you know, I, I'm living my life now in light of the promise, the irrevocable promise of God 
right. of right. life in Jesus Christ. Well, and, and, and to me, you know, you're asking the big question, um, the big question of why am I here? Sure. Why do I have this? And I talk about it with my, my young adults. Why do I have this meanness that I claim and identify that keeps me from being you or somebody else and that I is uniquely me? And I, you know, I think when you believe, well, I was, I'm here for a reason. Mm -hmm. And you start to really ask that question of this reason. Um, and, and when you really start to think about who we are as humans, even though we make all these mistakes, fundamentally, we want to be loved. We need to be loved. And that begs the question of how, again, why are we here? And if we believe we're here out of love, yeah. that we were brought here to be loved, then I think we start to we start to make some 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 steps towards that, Surely. and then when we understand that God loves us so much, and and th- that He Jesus comes to us, um, then all of a sudden it starts to make sense. And but that's really hard for people to understand because we're so logical and we think we know everything and we think we're so smart. We have that, to be able to explain everything exactly that we have trouble with this, and I think. When this is written, the idea that Lazarus is four days in the grave, the miracle of it is so awesome, and we trust it. But today's kind of skepticism, we read it, and we're like, well, that's not true. So obviously the Bible doesn't have anything to offer. Instead that of, never happens in exactly. real life. Yeah. Instead of take, getting rid of worrying about the, in my opinion, it, about the kind of um, liter, literalness of it and really thinking about why this story is what's the in point there. of it what's the point of yeah. the story and 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 to trust and when you start to live your life as someone loved um and and it's some and that, that that's somebody that that lives eternally in god it changes your life it, it changes how you approach your life and it, it changes how each day goes and it does it can it, well and and you know, in a very real sense, um, Jürgen Moltmann deals with this in his um, Ethics of Hope. Mm-hmm. And he, he says, you know, basically that this is what eternal life means. It means um, life that is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It is filled full of God's life. It is filled full of God's love. And that it is this love that makes the difference. Um, you know, he says basically, um, love is the self-communication of life. So in this way, eternal life becomes loving and loved life, mm-hmm. right? So, right, right, so this right. is a whole part of it is, is if we are here because we're meant to be loved and mm-hmm. we're meant to love, then this is, this is a essential right. part of what it means to have life. Exactly. Not just, yeah, yeah, not just yeah. physical life, but eternal life, the spiritual life right. that, that well, Jesus is talking about. And when you, when you can embrace this, then you go into the world, you go into the world following the law of love. You go into the mm-hmm. following as Jesus loved, and you, you reach out to others, and you, mm-hmm. it, it's like you can drop all the petty human junk which we still all have but you and 
it could just reach into that. And it's just, it's no longer about though the ones who have the most toys when they die win, right? It's yeah. no longer about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about something better really. It, it that's really more, is. that is really more fulfilling right, in right. terms of life. Yeah. Um, again, I'm going to go back to O'Day here because she's got some amazing insights here. Um, she says, Jesus defeats the power of death because in him the world meets the power of the love of God incarnate. Mm-hmm. Again, that picks up on your thought about love, mm-hmm. that, that God's full sharing of power over life and death with Jesus is an expression of God's love for Jesus in the world. And so, for God so loved the world, right? Yeah, yeah. His son came and brought life into the world. Mm-hmm. And that life, you know, I, I've used sort of the analogy of almost a vaccine or a virus even mm-hmm. to say that, you know, just as a virus works its way through until it infects the whole population, right, right. That, that the virus that Jesus brought into this world is life. Right. And that life is working its way through until it's going to define right. all humanity. And um, uh, to me, again, it, it, it comes down to a couple of things. Um, is your outlook on life hopeful, meaningful, mm-hmm. purposeful, or is it fatalistic and just yep. kind of resigned? Yep. Right. But I, I think it also comes down to you know this idea of, do you have to be able to explain everything or can you, right. can you, be, because if you do, how do you explain love? Right. Right. How do you explain exactly. God's love? How do you explain any love? Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, and, and you have these people, you have people in the world, they're called objectivist philosophers. There's a philosophy called objectivism and Ayn Rand was the prophetess of objectivism. And by the way, if you're a fan of Ayn Rand, you should really take a look at that because what Ayn Rand says is diametrically opposed to everything Jesus of Nazareth stood for. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, everything right. that, everything that biblical faith stands for. And, and because it's this, it's this, philosophy that basically just says you know this is all there is and you just get get the best get the most you can by any means whatever right and it doesn't matter there's no ethics it's just it's just you get the most you can because all that counts is is you is is you it's a a philosophy of self well and it's a real and and it's a real problem and i think in the world right now you can't be a fan of ayn rand and be a follower of jesus christ Mm -hmm. because her message is diametrically contradictory to to the message of jesus and and, you know it's become a whole philosophy and there's there's a there's a there's a there's a philosophical institute of the the objectivist institute that that promotes this way of looking at things i just heard a piece on npr probably on point about this group of people out there who are creating these bunkers and they're spending billions of dollars on their underground, almost hoping the world will be destroyed mm-hmm. to see if their bunker will hold up. And I'm like, for what point? Yeah. What point? What's are, the purpose? Are, yeah. are, do you think you want to live that? And I'm hoping COVID proves something about that we need community. We need each other. And we need yeah. each other. The point is, you're not an island. We are yeah. we are created yeah. together yeah. as as Well, and that brings us back to the whole point of it's love that brings life. Yes. And exactly. It's, it's, and it's God's love in Jesus Christ that brought life and 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 it's you know, it's a gift that comes from the love of God and and it it again, it's something that is that is meant to impact the way we live 
so that we can live not only in a loving way, but also in a hopeful way, in a way that is directed toward, again, I love, this is Gail O'Day's phrase, the irrevocable promise of life. Yes. You know, through Jesus Christ. Exactly. And when you live that way, and when you understand that you are loved from the beginning, and that you are are also taken up in love when your physical body dies. When you're dies. face-to-face with God. Yeah. yeah. The love no, of God doesn't let you go fear, there. And yeah. the whole fear of not being successful at what I've gathered, and the whole fear of, because you understand for whom you live. Yeah. And um, you understand um, the center of love. Now, that doesn't mean we ever do it perfectly, but it does mean that we're called to be in that space. And honestly, that framework has completely shifted my my life experience, um, people that that grow up uh, understanding that love that 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 love that we're given through God, and they can grow into that love as they age. That it, it just it it just you know I see people on the outside looking in, going, "I want to live that life." What? Why do? You, why? Why don't I have what you're you have? And it's kind of like it's it's not that. It's just it's just that I believe. Mm-hmm. It's just, I believe, and I trust God to provide for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I, I guess I'm looking at things from a different standpoint. I look at things from the standpoint of, it seems like a lot of the people I come in contact with, they just don't seem to care. They don't seem to care that, that, I mean, they're, they're, they're so caught up in, mm. in, the affairs of this world right. that they just don't have much time or energy to even think much well, about, I agree. about these deeper things. Until, until, until it's a crisis. Mm-hmm. Someone's dies. Someone's got a, a, a diagnosis that they're going to die. Somebody. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. because they haven't, they haven't taken time to stop and reach into the faith that's put in front of them, kind of like Calvin talks about. Well, I mean, we're putting it out there every week in exactly, the pulpit, right? <laughs> that they just, and then all of a sudden a crisis, and then they live so hard because they, and, and, and they, they, I mean, it's just, so I'm going to use an example. I got uh, one of my colleagues uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, serious, just had a double mastectomy. Um, for many people, this is, I mean, many, many knows, very, very, scary but she lives in faith and she's smiling her way through this Mm. with just this confidence Mm. that god is going to take care of her Mm. so here she is at this horrible surgery and she's just filled with joy and thankfulness of the people that are taking care of her and smiling at things like oh my gosh my hair is starting to come back and it's isn't it great and i have watched her we have all watched her with just the reminder of what it means to be someone of faith. Surely, yeah. surely. Well, and, and that really is where it comes down to. You know, that's the question. It's not so much the question of could this have happened. It's the question of what is the point. And the point is to direct us to put our faith in the God who loves us enough to pour out life into this world through Jesus Christ so that we may all have this kind of way, this ability to live this, this different kind of life. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Alan. Thank you.
That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.